der Triathlon Show 340. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Philip Larsen. Philip is Associate Professor at the Swedish School of Sports and Health Sciences, and he's also the Chief Science Officer at Silicon Valley Exercise Analytics, or SVEXA for short. In this interview, we will discuss research conducted by Philip and his team on finding the line between enough training, appropriate training versus too much training, and how they have used various physiological and cellular markers, and how they're planning to take these findings from the lab and apply them in the field. Uh, some ongoing research there that we, we tease a little bit, and we will hear more about that in the future, I'm sure. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. All of Roka's eyeglasses and sunglasses come with their patented Geeko anti-slip technology, so they will never fall off your face. They are also unbelievably lightweight and have fantastic optics. The performance sunglasses are developed for and tested in the most challenging conditions and used in sports from triathlon through speed skating and outdoor and adventure activities. And for prescription glasses, there is a home tryout program and you can renew, renew your prescription with a simple online vision test at home in front of your computer. All products have multiple options for frame and lens, and they all come with a two-year warranty. Uh, so check them out and visit roca.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim training tool that you can use at home, allowing you to improve your technique, work on power and stamina, and save time and stay consistent. It is a fantastic way to work on swim-specific core activation, as the instability element of the bench forces you to stabilize your core, and it helps you to work on a high elbow catch uh, as the height of the swim bench is perfectly designed for forcing you to keep that elbow up. You can get tips and specific workouts to use on the trainer uh, on Senate's social media channels like Instagram and YouTube. The Senate Swim Trainer is very affordable and even more so with a 20% discount code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. If it helps you get more consistent with your swim training, it might be one of the best investments that you can make. One note about this interview, my microphone did something weird. It was connected, but uh, something that I noticed with the microphone that I'm using is that every once in a while it will decide to muffle my sound or make it sound like I'm recording in, in a cookie jar. So that's what happened during this interview. It's not too bad, but it's not the usual sound quality. So bear with me for that. And uh, yeah, I got it fixed now for the intro and outro. But yeah, I didn't even notice it during the interview because I don't hear myself when I'm, when I'm talking through the microphone. I just noticed it in the recording afterwards. Sorry about that. Uh, it will hopefully be back to normal for the next interview. So with that, let's get into the interview with Dr. Philip Larsen. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Philip. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Good as well. Uh, let's start with an introduction. Can you tell the audience who you are and uh, what, uh, yeah, what you're doing in relation to endurance sports and science? Yeah, sure. So... I'm associate professor at the Swedish School of Sport and Health Science in Stockholm, Sweden. And I'm also working as CSO uh, in a company called Svexa, or Silicon Valley Exercise Analytics. And yeah, I have uh, been working with the national team in orienteering for a couple of year now, years now uh, as a physiologist and nutritionist. Uh, yeah, and my research is mainly about endurance sports i would say like uh, from muscle physiology perspective yeah it, yeah you go uh, into the details of uh, what's going on in the cells and in the mitochondria and so on as we'll as we'll discuss shortly yeah. uh, from an, your own sporting perspective do you have a background in in any sports uh, have you been actively participating in sports yeah absolutely i've been uh, training uh, my whole life and uh, it's mainly endurance sports I started with orienteering as a kid uh, I did it on a very recreational level just for fun uh, kept doing that until my teenage years I was maybe 15 16 then I 
switch to do a little bit of athletics, running middle distance uh, most of the time. And then like I was maybe in my 20s, I switched to triathlon. Started with sprint triathlons, went to the longer distance, doing Ironman, stuff like that. And in my 30s, I uh, got a lot of kids. I have three kids now. And uh, now I'm just a recreational uh, commuter athlete, uh, mainly cycling, doing a few ultra endurance runs and stuff like that. But I'm I'm still uh, very active, so to speak. Cool. Great. So, uh, yeah, we'll have the links to the studies that we'll discuss today in the show notes so listeners can follow along if they want to. Uh, the first one that we have on the list is called Excessive Exercise Training Causes Mitochondrial Functional Impairment and Decreases Glucose Tolerance in Healthy Volunteers. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot <laughs> to digest. Uh, but uh, can you describe in simple terms what were the hypotheses that you wanted to test with this study? <clears throat> Yeah, sure. So, yeah, it sounds very complicated and technical, but so like in in the projects we are doing right now, we have we want to have the athletes' perspective on what's happening in in the muscles. And like the starting point for this project was that, okay, so everyone knows like if you're an athlete or a coach on a high level, you know that if you increase your training load, you will get better. You increase it even more, you will get even better. But then you come to this breaking point when, when uh, you don't get any benefits anymore, although you increase the training. And then after a while, you can you can become, uh, we call it overreached, or that can develop into the overtraining syndrome. Or, uh, so, so it's... Uh, it's a spectrum. So, and what we wanted to find was uh, what is the optimal training dose, more or less, and what hap- what what is happening when you go from the optimal training dose and you increase that a little bit, then you want then you're starting to get what we call maladaptations. So you don't get any positive effects anymore. And we were really interested in uh, in this breaking point and designed a study to understand what is going on. Uh, when you train too much mm, yeah yeah so uh, tell us about the protocol because it was a very kind of neat protocol to mm. to find that breaking point i i think yeah yeah it was not neat for us as researchers and it was absolutely not neat for the uh, for the subjects involved so it was really hard but what we did we took recreational athletes so we wanted them to have some kind of training background so if they were like completely untrained or unexperienced they we thought that it's all likely that they wouldn't like like the training or they would drop out and things like that. So we found recreational healthy students, so to speak, with some kind of training background, but they were not like doing interval training uh, on a daily basis or ever almost. Uh, And what we did was like we took uh, five biopsies like approximately each week and the first week was uh, like uh, very light training. It's it's five biopsies in total, so approximately yeah. one each week. Not 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 five biopsies per week. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no, just to just to clarify that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. yeah, so first week, first baseline testing, then a light week of training, and then it was uh, a week of um, what we call like moderate training. So in the end of uh, that third week we wanted we wanted them to be like optimally trained so we tried to design the best possible training stimulus we could for them so quite a lot of training but also some recovery so they should be like optimally trained by them and by the end of that week they were pretty tired they felt that okay so now it could be time for some rest and but then we gave them this overtraining week where we had almost daily really hard interval sessions. Um, and by the end of that week, of course, they became like all the symptoms of someone who's been training really, really hard with uh, lack of motivation, uh, starting to feel really bad in the muscles, like heavy legs and stuff like that. And uh, they couldn't 
push the heart rate up uh, during these intense training sessions. And at the end of that week, we took another biopsy, did more tests. And then after the, after the overtraining week, we let them recover with only light training for another week. So it was like four weeks of progressive, harder and harder training and one recovery week. Mm. And uh, can you just briefly detail, so how much training did they do in the first week or the light week of training compared to then the fourth week, the overtraining week, to, to get us an idea of where they progressed to and where they progressed from? Yeah, so remember that they didn't have any experience with this kind of uh, interval training. So it was it was uh, four-minute intervals or eight-minute intervals uh, that were supposed to be all out. So they were instructed to give their absolute best, to produce the, the best average power output that, that they could uh, do with our motivation. Uh, so the first week was about uh, one or two sessions. And then the second week, it was uh, three sessions, as I recall. And uh, they progressed until the overtraining week, which was almost daily. So I think they had like one rest day during the overtraining week. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they were only do- all the sessions they did were interval sessions. They didn't do any continuous training, easier training. But it was progressed from those two weekly sessions to six sessions. But it was all as uh, done as interval training, as intense training. Yeah, exactly. And I yeah. think that was a crucial part of the protocol that we didn't give them any easy distance rides or things like that. So it was only high intensity interval training yeah 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 and for these athletes when they were not well they were not athletes they were recreational uh, or they were healthy healthy volunteers i guess uh, you would call them or they yeah that's to to add more to add more easy training would probably not have it would have just overtrained them sooner i guess yeah i think so yeah yeah. Um, so, say so then, what did you, you you measured a few different things uh, as you talked about? You took biopsies. You also measured uh, performance characteristics and things like VO two max and so on. Uh, yeah, where do you want to start? Which which type of results do you want to start discussing first? We can just go through the the most important ones and and what they mean. Yeah. So I can start with uh, the most common uh, physiological measures when you do training studies. And that is like the cardiovascular adaptation. So increased uh, VO2 max, uh, like lower lactate at submaximal work rates and stuff like that. And uh, physical performance, of course, which was measured as the power output during the interval sessions. And when we did those measurements, like then we didn't see anything that was striking. So when they increased the training load, they got higher and higher VO2 max, maximal oxygen consumption. The lactate uh, levels at submaximal work rates decreased. The heart rate at submaximal work rates decreased. Everything according to the textbook, how it should be when you experience positive adaptations to to the training load. Uh, And the only thing that was, uh, like after the overtraining week, the only thing that we saw was that the poor uh, performance did not uh, improve further. So this, remember that, again, this was like recreational students, volunteers, and they had like a really good improvement in performance from week to week, just by including this interval training. So they improved by a lot each week. But during the hardest, after the hardest training week, uh, there were no improvements at all. And some of them decreased, some showed smaller improvements but overall it was uh, there were no change no improvements after despite the hard training yeah and did you say in that last week that vo2 max was it also stagnant and, and lactate were you also stagnant or did they still keep improving even in the overtraining week they kept improving actually so you, you can see okay. this almost like a staircase they just got better and better and better uh, yeah, yeah yeah and uh then perhaps uh, moving on to the the mitochondrial adaptations. Uh, what what did you fi- what did you do? What did you test, and what did you find? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was these were like the crucial measurements. Uh, so we took muscle biopsies, and what we do with the muscle biopsies is that we isolate the mitochondria. So yes, to um, so the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They are the ones producing the ATP that you need for muscle contraction and 
and adaptation, like positive adaptations to training should be more mitochondria and mitochondria with higher respiratory capacity or higher oxygen uptake. Uh, and when we did that, so we, in the first weeks, in the first three weeks, we saw this improvement in uh, mitochondrial respiration. But after the overtraining week, we found like, a, a quite substantial decrease in uh, mitochondrial respiration. And mitochondrial respiration basically means the oxygen uptake of the mitochondria. Is that correct? Or Yes, that's correct. Yeah. One thing that was uh, unique to this, unique, it was uh, special to this study is that um, when you measure mitochondrial respiration, you can do it in two ways, more or less. You can either take a whole muscle, like a fiber bundle, then you permeabilize that, uh, and you measure the oxygen up, like you have the mitochondria intact inside the fibers, and then you measure the oxygen uptake per gram of muscle uh, tissue. But what we did was that we broke the muscle cells or the muscle fibers, took out the mitochondria, so we have the isolated mitochondria, and we measured the respiration on them. And doing that, like if you measure in the permeabilized fibers, you don't know if you have an increase in mitochondrial content or if it's the actual um, mitochondria themselves uh, that have an increased respiratory capacity. But doing the isolation, yeah. we can assess that parameter much more uh, closely. Yeah, yeah. just for the listeners to clarify, mitochondrial content in that context means you have more mitochondria. So even though their, the mitochondrial respiration might have been lower, if you would have measured the whole um, muscle fiber, then you wouldn't necessarily have, have known that the respiration or you wouldn't have known that the respiration was lower in case that the number of mitochondria or the mitochondrial content went increased. So, so that makes sense uh, that you did that. Um, yeah. So, okay. So the mitochondrial respiration impaired. And uh, then you also tested some uh, parameters related to glucose tolerance and, and also the substrate utilization, which I think might be interesting to talk about as well. Yeah. Um, so the glucose tolerance test is like, so this is a diagnostic test to test if someone's got uh, type 2 diabetes, for example. And what we did is so they, uh, come to the lab uh, fasting overnight and they get 75 grams of glucose or pure sugar in a, in a water, in water solution and they drink it. And then we measure glucose over two hours. And of course, when you drink glucose, you can see that your blood sugar increases. And if you're healthy, you will see that it peaks after maybe an hour and starts to drop back again. And the expected effect of training is that like, if you have positive effects on glucose tolerance, you would see that this curve uh, decreases as an adapt adaptation to the training. Uh, and that, like, so you're expecting to be, uh, get like better or higher insulin sensitivity and better glucose uptake in the muscles. Mm. Uh, but what we found was that after the overtraining week, we found a big decrease in glucose tolerance. So the glucose curve got bigger, so to speak. They peaked at a higher level and it didn't decrease as fast. Mm. So this is the op and it yeah, it's the opposite to the expected. Uh, after a training period, I would say. Yeah, but it it, it did. Did you see any positive changes in the first three weeks, uh, just like you did with with some of the other measures, or was it only after the last week that mm. that you saw that negative change? No, the first weeks it it was unchanged. So these were like really, I mean, they were really healthy subjects, and you can't really expect a decrease if they're starting out at a really healthy level, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And what about substrate utilization? You you tested that as well with fat and carbohydrate oxidation, I think at a submaximal intensity. Yeah. So, yeah, just to explain substrate utilization. So, I mean, you have carbohydrates, you have fats, and the body, like a healthy body, can choose between those two fuels, uh, both at rest and during exercise. And uh, what we found was that uh, throughout the training protocol and like regardless if they were like optimally trained or overtrained they uh, the like the um, preference for fat as a fuel increased so even when they were like 
in the beginning of the training period, you can see that they switched and chose to burn uh, fat as a fuel to a higher and higher extent. And when they were overtrained, actually they burnt a lot of fat. So that was not like mechanistically linked to uh, to what, what you found on the mitochondrial level. So you would like there are theories on like diabetics, for example, that uh, if you have diabetes, some people think that this could be related to an impaired capacity to burn fat or choose fat as a fuel. But uh, we didn't see that during the overtraining phase. It was actually even higher. Mm. And then that's something that you see in the overtraining literature, uh, as far as I've seen anyway, that sometimes the substrate utilization and increased preference for fat despite overtraining or overreaching could be because of just low muscle glycogen content or perhaps mm. the glycolytic pathway shutting down but you you tested both of those things as well and and i think you didn't find that to be the at least with the muscle glycogen content it was it was mm. the same it, that wasn't the reason for the the negative adaptations after the overtraining week yeah it was this was something that was important to us that we didn't want them to lose weight or like it shouldn't like what our findings we didn't want our findings to be explained by an energy deficit so we were like we measured the weight at each training session and made sure that they kept the weight and after each training session they got like recovery drinks and we gave them standardized meals and everything we could to just match their energy expenditure so to speak and it was actually the glycogen levels were actually the highest during the overtraining phase. So mm. you can't say so this what we found was a lack of glycogen and all they needed to do was to eat more carbohydrates. So uh, that was not the case in, in this study. Yeah. So, so if we summarize things, uh, when you had an initial improvement for three weeks with gradually intensifying the training or adding more of the type of training that they did, and uh, then after adding just a bit too much uh, on purpose, of course, the, the performance stopped improving and you saw a, a decline in mitochondrial respiration. And uh, so, so what, what, is the, what are the conclusions from, from, this, from these results, would you say? What, what, what would you suggest are the main things to remember or, or to, that you would conclude from this study? Yeah, yeah what we have found is... Uh a physiological measure of the breaking point when you train too much. So, and this has not been uh, shown before. Like if, you, if we would only have measured oxygen uptake, for example, or lactate threshold, or like some enzyme like citrate synthase, which is an enzyme in the mitochondria, we wouldn't have seen any changes. We needed to measure mitochondrial function and we needed to do the glucose tolerance test and we could see that when you went from the optimal training load to the excessive training load or the overtraining then we found that these two parameters switched and mm. and and that's something that was lacking before like something mm. objective that you could measure that told us about this transition yeah and can you can you link uh, somehow these parameters these measurables uh with uh, the glucose tolerance and the, the mitochondrial function to what normally happens in an overreached or overtrained state do you have any mechanistic theories for for how why these variables are important you showed that they are but why why are they potentially important yeah now it's getting complicated so what we thought and what was proposed before in the literature is that okay so overtraining so we know that when we exercise we produce a lot of reactive oxygen species so free radicals that potentially can damage our cells if they are not handled by the antioxidant system that we have in our in our bodies and every cells so a lot of people thought that okay so overtraining might be an overproduction of reactive oxygen species and too much free radicals damaging the cells and that could lead to these maladaptations on the physiological level it could be involved in the mitochondrial dysfunction 
uh, and also in the glucose uptake in the cells. But we measured oxidative stress, so we have like to to measure. It's pretty hard to measure oxidative stress in a in a good way. But we found that oxidative stress was completely unchanged throughout this study, regardless of how much you trained. So it seems to be that the body wants to maintain oxidative stress at a stable level. And I believe, I don't have so much ground for this, but um, I believe that, okay, so the body wants to maintain homeostasis and unchanged oxidative stress levels. And one way of doing that when you overtrain could be to shut down your mitochondrial respiration because mitochondria produces a lot of reactive oxygen species. There's other sources of reactive oxygen in, uh, in the muscles too. But a good way to do it is just if you can just turn down the mitochondrial production of reactive oxygen species, then you can survive or handle this period of overtraining. But the trade-off or the punishment for doing that is that you will perform worse, like physical capacity will decrease and if you continue doing it for a long time you met, might get like uh, symptoms of overtraining syndrome like hormonal disturbances sleep disturbances and stuff like that mm. yeah yeah that is a super interesting interesting theory and uh, yeah, yeah sounds, sounds to make logical sense um, we, we will discuss some training implications and applications uh, but let's maybe first uh, cover the second study that you did as a kind of a follow-up or a similar study which was called short-term intensified training temporarily impairs mitochondrial respiratory capacity in elite endurance athletes so so similar similar theme but here you had a cohort of elite endurance athletes so yeah, um, yeah can you tell us about this study yeah uh, so it's it's actually from a time perspective so this study with elite athletes uh, was done before we did uh, the first study with the excessive exercise in, that we published in cell mm -hmm. metabolism so it was done before but it was we didn't uh, write it up until afterwards and i also have a third study showing pretty much the same thing with it's again untrained individuals and they did sprint interval training like wing gate testing so it was like um, I think it was 10 or 11 days of 10 times 30 seconds all out on the bike. So extreme, extreme type of sprint training, mitochondrial respiration before and after. And we saw this, this same thing, a uh, decline in respiration. And again, now with elite athletes that we did. So it was a slightly different protocol. They trained for five weeks. It was like really good elite uh, triathletes and cyclists. Um, and they did like a hard period of training for five weeks. And we found the same thing like, with a decline in mitochondrial respiration. And this was before this, uh, uh, <laughs> the first study that we mentioned, we thought that like, this, okay, so this is completely unexpected results. We thought that we didn't have that, that hypothesis when we went into the first two studies. We thought that, okay, so we're going to do this training protocol. We measure respiration and, um, we had other hypotheses, uh, but we expected to see an improvement in mitochondrial respiration. But we found these declines, and when we discussed it, we thought that okay, so we are having we are doing like pretty extreme protocols here. So could it be that this is actually overtraining that we are seeing? But we didn't know really. So we measured a lot of other stuff around, like like if we could find something else, negative aspects on the muscles. But mm. and that was like the starting point for me to design this study with five repeated biopsies because I wanted to see so if it's overtraining so if we just increase the training dose more and more then we should come to a point where all of this happens so that was like the original that's where the hypothesis came from these two studies and then we did a yeah. five biopsy one and and found this a breaking point which I'm uh, which I'm really glad that we did yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't been able to read this study in the elite athletes uh, because you were locked out of your email, <laughs> so yeah. so I didn't manage to get it. But uh, but but so so did you you do two biopsies in that one one before and one after the training protocol? So you it's yeah. that's the one of the main differences. You couldn't see how it changed throughout the training period to potentially intensified training. No, exactly. 
So yeah, I would say that the main difference is that we used elite athletes. And like, mm. needless to say, it's much harder to overtrain elite athletes compared to recreational ones because yeah, you just need a so much higher dose of training, and they are mm. so used to it from from all years of training, and they usually have like a really good base training. So it's it's hard to do that. Thankfully. Yeah. And and what was the training protocol like in uh, that they used? Yeah, so it was. Um, it was like it's a really tough protocol. So it was, um, it's actually a di- there's a diet intervention behind this too. So it was actually half of the group in this uh, elite study, they had like a carbohydrate-rich diet, and the others had uh, a low carbohydrate diet. So like that was the primary hypothesis in that study to look at if training with low glycogen is uh, better or worse than training with high glycogen levels. But we didn't see any differences at all there, actually. Hmm. Uh, but it was like, yeah, it was really hard training. So intervals in the morning and then like the group with ha- that got lots of carbohydrates, they could eat after the interval session in the morning. So they replenished the glycogen stores and then they did um, like a distance uh, ride in the afternoon. And the group that were the low glycogen group, they didn't get so much uh, carbohydrates. So mainly fat and proteins and started the afternoon session with much lower glycogen levels. But it was almost daily training in that study too. Mm. Yeah, and for five weeks, you said? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, so, well, you mentioned there that there had two groups in that elite study, but that's one thing that I wanted to ask about the the study in the healthy volunteers you you only had one one group so um yeah can you can you explain are there any things are any cautions that we should take with drawing conclusions because there was no control group or or if you would have had a control group how how would you have what would they have done what what would you think would be the the perfect control group in that study yeah (laughs) that's exactly what we discussed and yeah, you should. Of course, you should always be careful to make conclusions about like single studies. It's always more complicated than that, especially if you try to take that knowledge and transfer it to like the real athlete setting, so to speak. So you should be careful, of course. But yeah, what we struggled with was that okay. So if we're going to include a control group, what should that control group do? So if like the most obvious thing would be someone that only rested or just continued their normal life. But then we like take five biopsies in a control group that, that they are not changing, just to show that we can measure oxygen uptake, we can measure mitochondrial respiration, we can do glucose tolerance tests, and it's stable over time in, uh, in a control group. It's, uh, it wouldn't add any value except for showing that we could do the measurements and there were no external factors affecting uh, what we did um, so so that wouldn't be like so informative but now like afterwards we have another like idea for a study design and this is crucial and it's uh, it's it all relates to how you do tapering for peak performance and how you do your overreaching phase so when you train really hard so that performance drops and then you do the tapering and performance improves again. So the idea here is that if we had a control group, it would be really interesting to uh, one one group do as we did, harder and harder training until they're optimally trained, then they overtrain for one week and then they taper. Uh, and then of course we see that they recover and they perform better after the recovery week. But it would be interesting to see that if we stop the training after optimal training, we skip the overtraining or overreaching phase altogether. So we just skipped that and went directly from this optimal training into the taper without any negative effects of too much training and see would that group be better than the overtraining group. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of... Um, um, you know, controversies in in the field regarding this. How hard should you like? How hard should you do your overreaching phase? How far should you take it? Should you 
like overreach for three weeks and just dig a deeper and deeper hole and then taper and just expect it to bounce back from there? Or should you do two weeks or should it be, should you like stay afloat all the time and never be, uh, like never experience any training induced performance drop? And I think actually that like overreaching, like going after that performance drop like that you should increase your training more and more. And when you see that, okay, so now my t- splits are getting worse. Now my power output is getting worse and I'm starting to feel terrible. Now it's time for taper. I don't think there's any value in doing that, like training and just waiting for your performance to, to drop. I think that is that in many cases, it's too late if you do that. It, it's a good, like it's a, it's a real red flag if you, are, if you see a performance drop and you feel terrible then you should uh, then you should um, reduce your training but i'm pretty sure that you should start the recovery process before that and this is not only for tapering for big events i mean this is the general training process like how to improve in the long term yeah well this is a highly unscientific opinion but just my coaching and and athlete experiences that i 100 agree with 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 what you just said there I, that's what i believe as well um i think another aspect of the con- potential control group uh what you said there makes a lot of sense that you train them until they're optimally trained but not overtrained and then then you uh stop it there or you go into taper there but another thing that could be interesting and this is this would be more of a hypothesis of finding the time course overtraining is what if the control group does the baseline or not the baseline week but the first week of training over and over again Hmm. because we don't necessarily know that it's that final week of training that overtrains them what if it's the combination of the last two weeks of training so and yeah it's difficult to say how long does it take to build up what is the chronic effect of all the training you've done over the last two weeks or four weeks or two months really so so that could also be an an interesting aspect yeah, to look at. Definitely. It, uh, it's really hard to tell the difference between time effects and like the dose effect here, I would say. Yeah. There's a yeah. really, really, really good study done quite many years ago, not so much, like 10 years ago maybe, by Christopher Perry, looking at, um, like, he, he did exact same training day after day and measured, yeah, he measured like the adaptations to training and he could see, like, I think it was just a week or maybe 10 days or 12 days maybe. But he could, like, really see this uh, the nice time effects that you have the biggest improvement, the biggest signaling for uh, improved training adaptations during the first sessions. And then it just levels off this uh, the whole signaling process. Mm, yeah. Well, let's discuss some some implications for training. And I think maybe what you just said there with not just tapering, but the overall training process of um, just overloading or loading and adapting is an interesting aspect of this. So, for example, think, thinking about like introducing a loading period, but then recovering from it at the appropriate moment. Mm-hmm. What other, what, what things would you say that we can maybe not take away but we can we can hypothesize based on based on your results regarding those kind of load and rest cycles if if you want to call them that um yeah like yeah what what we're looking for is something like a marker if it's objective that's something that you need to measure if it's just subjective how you feel but you need a marker for when it's time to stop your loading phase and go into the recovery phase and Mm -hmm. they are like I, I think that most athletes and coaches are doing that by feel. So they plan for a hard week and then they just keep crushing the training. And when they feel they had enough, they are recovering. But uh, yeah, w- we are actually publishing a study based on the same data um, where we look at, okay, so how, so w- when we find this, uh, we find some, <laughs> Uh, responses during the training phase. So, for example, one thing is that we see that uh, lactate, if you do this maximal like or really hard intervals, you can see that the lactate levels that you reach at the end of each session, it uh, becomes lower and lower. 
Mm. You are not able to push your lactate levels up uh, to a high level when you get fatigued. So we try to uh, delineate where is the, like how much should you allow the lactate levels to drop before it's time to say it stop. And the same thing with, with the heart rate during, during the hard sessions. We see that it gets lower and lower, but if it's reduced by, so it's, you say you have your normal heart rate when you do hard intervals is 180. And then when you have been training hard for a few days, it's 178. When we're training hard for 10 days, it's 172 maybe. And you can see that, yes, it's, it becomes harder and harder to push your heart rate up. But what is like, what's the cutoff? How much should you allow it to drop before you say stop? So we use like a number of different metrics uh, to like model where is the, what does the optimal training dose look like? Yeah, and that's that's a study that you have in the works right now, or you're uh, crunching the data and writing it up. Is that the status of the project? Uh, yeah, that study is uh, it's actually submitted and uh, it's under review. So mm-hmm. we are eagerly awaiting the response on that. Um, but then, yeah, we have another study that's an ongoing project. I have a new PhD student now, and um, we want to see if we can apply this. Uh, the findings that we have so we want to so so what we're doing is an observational study so we are using a lot of different wearable techniques so we are collecting data from uh, you know the running watches or the cycling computers on power output heart rate during training so we can model the training load uh, very good and we are using continuous glucose monitors you might have seen a lot of triathletes are using them now. I have seen with yeah. this like a patch on your shoulder, and you can, you get like your minute by minute glucose levels. So we use that on the athletes, and um, we have the aura rings. So it's a ring that you have on your finger measuring uh, sleep cycles and uh, sleep uh, quality, heart rate during sleep, resting heart rate, and body temperature. So we're collecting all this data during one year in like 20 elite athletes. So they're all uh, in the national team in different endurance sports. So they're like high, highest level athletes. And then we follow them. And what we're looking for is these patterns. So what does too much training look like based on sleep parameters, based on glucose param- parameters, based on heart rate during exercise and stuff like this. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's ongoing. We're like a little bit more than halfway through that data collection period right now. But it's, I think it's super scary and really interesting to do that because I've been doing a lot of lab-based studies, like interventions in the lab. You take them in, you try to control for everything as much as you can. Now we're just using these wearables, put it on the athletes, and they live their normal lives, train as they usually do, and we just measure stuff and uh, we get the data back but it will be to do this kind of deep analysis uh on these athletes will be super interesting yeah yeah that's absolutely fascinating and if obviously if you can find some some clear results from from that study then because it's um, externally valid and they're just living going on with their own lives and their own training and Mm -hmm. with sensors and and wearables that are available to to anybody then that means that it becomes easier or pretty easy for people to to, to do monitoring of, on on their own and and try to yeah avoid a situation of overreaching or overtraining, which you can't really say for biopsies. Not not many people can have a have a biopsy lab in their basement, so no. it's a bit more difficult to replicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, that, yeah. Really hope that this will like we're trying to we do our best now to use the findings from the lab and try to transfer them to like the real athlete setting and like we wanted to come up with really good advice for like how hard to train when to stop training and like i mean with so many like everyone's got a smartwatch nowadays and then you see that okay so my deep sleep was one hour less than my 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 friend here so what does it mean? Does it mean anything? Well, like we can, I think we can explain those questions much better after this study when we have all the data. So it's uh, mm. uh, it, yeah. it will be nice to look at the final product of that. 
Yeah, yeah, and I can see a follow-up interview shaping up for when when you have well, this you have one study in for review now, and then another one in the works. So, so hopefully we can we can chat about that at some point in the future. I don't want to ask you too much about the one that's in review because I know that yeah, it's uh, yeah, you, yeah, you probably don't want to say too much until it's until it's accepted. But just you mentioned lactate and heart rate mm. are those the two main markers that from from those results that you're looking at as potentially important for finding that cutoff point where uh yeah you, you are where you need to back down on your training or or potentially can see where you're going too far or are there any other data points or parameters that you can monitor yeah there are other uh, parameters but like we we wanted to uh, look at parameters that we know that coaches and athletes can uh, use or like that they measure themselves so it should be applicable to everyone if you have a lactate monitor at least or a heart rate monitor. So we used lactate and heart rate. They were like, they had a high predictive value and they were easily accessible for athletes. But then on top of that, we also have subjective measures. So just the Borg scale, like the RPE scale. If you, if you do a submaximal uh, workload, if you go run for... Uh, at a specific speed or if you cycle at a specific uh, work output if you then just rate how you feel in your legs or in your chest when you're doing that like on a scale from 6 to 20 most of the time uh, that is also sensitive uh, to this this kind of separating being only fatigued from having done too much going towards overreaching overtraining Hmm. Uh, so that's good. And another thing is, uh, we, we had we use this POM scale, so the profile of mood states. We can see that, like, and that is just a questionnaire, sixty-seven questions actually. So it's not really feasible to do all the time. But you can see that when when you go over the edge, you will uh, you will feel that you will get your mood will get worse, your energy levels and your motivation will drop, and that's. Mm. seems to be linked with uh doing too, with doing too much yeah yeah um one one question on the type of high intensity training that uh that you used in these training protocols i'm just wondering in general if you have any thoughts on using high intensity interval training uh for performance and as compared to using it for health are there any considerations or different different things to take into account when when looking at those two different objectives mm, yeah like uh yeah one thing i want to say is that our study doesn't indicate that you shouldn't do a uh, hit type of exercise uh, so it it is like a really time efficient way to improve both metabolic health cardiovascular performance and physical performance if you are if you have a lack of time so if you just have one hour per week to train probably you should do hit training or something more intense than just going for a walk or a slow run so that it is valuable training and it's time efficient training but you can definitely do too much of it especially as an elite athlete if you like you read the studies and then you look at the comparisons between doing distance training or like at lower intensities or even threshold training and compare that to the high intensity training you can see that most scientific studies favors the hit training as more effective yeah uh, but you should remember that like you you really need like all athletes and coaches know that you need a base you need your aerobic base to adapt to this higher training later on. But that's like what that is from a scientific perspective is not clear. So what is it we're doing many hours at a low intensity that prepares the body to better respond to the high intensity training? I haven't seen any really good answers to that actually, like on the, on the molecular or on the cellular or mitochondrial level. I haven't seen any good mechanistic like explanations for why it is but you, you can do too much and our study shows that it seems to uh, hurt the mitochondria so to speak and your metabolic metabolic health might deteriorate even if it's temporary it uh, you have a disturbance you can do too much and uh, don't forget to do the base training
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would uh, theorize that may- maybe it's not so much about having to, you have to do six months of all aerobic training before you do hit training, but maybe it's more about how long is your hit training period uh, or how long do you focus on it? Mm. So, so you don't want to do it for no matter how good of an aerobic base you have. I think if you do eight weeks focused on doing a lot of high intensity interval training mm. for most athletes, that's going to be too much but you can maybe do two good weeks and then you can rebuild refocus on some other training and then you do two other weeks and i know this is something i wanted to get into because i heard you on on another podcast in in swedish actually i'll I'll link to it in the show notes because it was very good uh Mm -hmm. that you talked about potentially using shorter load and rest cycles uh, and that that potentially could be um yeah could could be could be an interesting application of, of the results do you want to expand on that a bit uh, yeah, it was more or less what I said before that like you shouldn't dig yourself into a too deep hole because it will take more time than needed to get out from there. So, and I mean, if you look at like physiological responses, like how cells or organisms have this homeostatic response that they re- try to return to baseline and build back stronger afterwards. There's no real sense in like not allowing for recovery quite often. If you do it for too long, like it's just an accumulation accumulation of fatigue and a lot of processes in the body that like uh, you need to get rid of damaged proteins. You need to replenish energy stores. You need to get the before like like the bounce in your legs if you want back to be able to. Uh, to push yourself uh, even further so it's um, but but it's really hard like scientifically to say, to say that okay you need to have short cycles because otherwise you will have mitochondrial dysfunction there's no time for that there's there's i don't have anything any scientific support for saying that it's more when we do observational stuff like when we see like when you measure the response of three weeks of overreaching compared to five days and you have to look at yeah. over time what is the response yeah i think i think the value of science uh like this is often that they give you some ideas that you can test out on yourself or on your athletes and from an kind of informed position or more informed position and uh but then at the end of the day you have to see what works for the athlete and it mm. might not work for everybody but you you can yeah you you can generate ideas uh based on based on things like this and um uh, and then see how it how it really works in practice in the field yeah so one final question uh before we start to wrap up with the rapid fire questions uh, if you could just give three pieces of advice for the listeners of this podcast uh that would help them improve their endurance sports performance and this can be anything really that you can think of what would those three pieces of advice be yeah i would say that it's um you know from working with elite athletes it's I, I'm, I'm really impressed by all of the subjects in our new study now, they're like amazing uh, in many different ways. But I don't think they are so special, you know, from a like genetic uh, point of view, or what you want to say. They are like, they have, they're doing things differently compared to normal people, I would say. And one thing, it's like obvious, it's uh, consistency. You need to have like, you just need to repeat day after day after day doing your thing. Uh, and it's like it's most people when they hear that oh that's a boring advice everyone knows that but like do you really manage to be consistent do you manage to avoid uh, sick days injury days Uh, like do you train too hard like if if you're not consistent you might be training too hard in periods but then that will punish you so that you will need to take more recovery if you can like back it up week after week after week um, and balancing load and recovery that seems to be like the key thing that elite does that normal like what we say recreational athletes age groupers or wannabe at elites don't have they don't have consistency 
And uh, yeah, and so that's one thing. And like, I feel like how to get, like, how do you become consistent in your training? And this is also like preliminary data from the ongoing study, I would say. And it's like the small things. And it, this is even bo- more boring advice that is like sleep is one thing. Um, and nutrition is another thing. So if you, it, it's really like the small, really simple things that everyone know that you should go to bed at approximately the same time each day. You should do this, like, don't get stressed up before you go to bed. Don't uh, stay up late, watch horror movies. Now, like, at least here in Sweden, where it's really bright now, get dark curtains so you don't get exposed exposed to light. So we can see that. So, like, the elites get really consistent sleep compared to those that, uh, that are not on the elite level. And the same with nutrition. I think this is even more like I think that a lot of people make nutrition way too complicated. It's so easy. Like the basics are so easy. Like eat enough. Uh, don't stress about it. Uh, make sure that you like refuel after after intense sessions, stuff like that. That everyone like if you open like one book in about sports nutrition, this is like the most like the first page, the most pa- basic things that not so interesting to talk about, not so interesting to write about. But getting the small things right is uh, that seems to be key. Mm. Yeah, great advice. And uh, now let's move into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is: What's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, it's uh, Better Training for Distance Runners by Arthur Lydiard. All right. And what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Going up early in the morning. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Uh, I don't have any. I couldn't come up with any good names. I'm sorry. Right. I have no, I don't want to pick anyone specific. Yeah. I have a lot of people. Um, Philip, do you have any social media or places where people can follow you? Uh, or I, I didn't really find too much activity on your Twitter recently, but uh, mm. ResearchGate, I saw that you had <laughs> at least. So your studies were up there. Yeah. No, I've been, I've been late. I don't have the energy to do that. Like, yeah, no, no special social media for me. Like, you can... Uh, the company I'm working for that I founded with colleagues is like svexa.com. So S-V-E-X-A.com. So we are doing a lot of like we're, we're doing a lot of the things that we're talking about now. So my research is one thing, but trying to apply that to athletes and getting the, you know, advice out and uh, doing that. So it's a, like a data analytics company. So mm-hmm. we're trying to do all the things that uh, I've talked about now. So it's... Uh, and that is an exciting add-on to the research I'm doing. And uh, uh, how are you working with uh, with athletes? How, how does it work? Uh, do you have? I mean, I, I looked at Sexus website, so I know a little bit maybe. But are you working with a lot of teams and organizations? Is that kind of the the business model? And then they have their athletes get apply use your services and uh, and testing methods and so on. Or uh, do athletes individually reach out to you for for help? All of it, like the business model is uh, based on like we're working for companies as back end, like doing the algorithms and the calculations. Like, for example, if you have a hardware, we can do the calculations for those kind of companies. Um, and we are working with organizations, too, uh, and also with individual athletes. So the individual athletes, it's mainly for like proof of concepts and because we are all really interested in that kind of development. Um, but yeah, we're doing all of it. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, I'll link to that as well in the show notes so people can can have a look and uh, see what you're all about. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Philip. It's been a great, really fascinating research that you've done and that you have got going on. So yeah, I really look forward to hopefully having you on uh, in the future once you've finished up this uh, study where you're the observational study that you're working on and we can chat about that yeah thanks nice to talk to you 
I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we will have links to Philip's profile on ResearchGate and also his company website, Svexa. We will have links to the papers discussed here, which uh, just to mention names again, uh, where excessive exercise training causes mitochondrial functional impairment and decreases glucose tolerance in healthy volunteers. And uh, short-term intensified training temporarily impairs mitochondrial respiratory capacity in elite endurance athletes. Uh, I also included a link to the paper that Philip mentioned uh, by Christopher Perry about the time course of endurance adaptations and uh, a link to Philip's uh, episode on Tyngre Treningsnack, uh, a podcast in Swedish that was uh, really good and interesting if you speak Swedish. If you need any help reaching that next big goal that you've set yourself or you've hit a plateau and want to move past that, then consider reaching out to us and discuss coaching or working with the Scientific Triathlon Training Plan. Uh, we have worked with athletes of all different levels and uh, we would love to help you as well on your triathlon journey. Uh, check out all the information on scientifictriathlon.com or email me directly and we can discuss your specific goals and needs. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuit tri-suits, swimskins, goggles, sunglasses and prescription glasses and use the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roca order. And thank you to Zenate. Use the Zenate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. And get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.